0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I appreciate you being here this morning. This is the third of four of these discussions about faith seeking understanding. Now, I I get paid to talk about this stuff all the time, so I like to read and think and talk about how these philosophers have tried to understand what faith is about. But I'm not here just to tell you what a bunch of philosophers have said. In a way, I hope to convince you that our faith requires us to understand it. That is, what do we believe in as Christians? What are the, the claims of our faith? You know, for instance, in the Eucharist service this morning, we always recite the Nicene Creed, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, that God in some way, as a creator, designed the world to reflect the fact that it was created by God. The more we study the world, how it was ordered, what we experience about its goodness and beauty within it, reflects something about God. We just don't believe, we believe in a God that should be also understood now, of course, God is always greater than whatever we can understand. That would be rather arrogant, presumptuous on our part, that I could figure out God the same way as I could figure out who won the base—I mean the football game last night. That's a fact. We all know that. God's being is unique, unlike any other being. But God has created the world in a way in which we can reflect upon the nature of God and a lot of what God has done. And even more so, we know, that is our faith in, we, I believe, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is, Christ was fully human and fully divine. By understanding more of how divinity and humanity are brought together in the revelation, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the more we can understand about the nature of God. So, I think it's not an inconsistency or contradiction to try to apply our reasoning to understanding the basis of our faith. What I'm arguing is that the basis of our faith, faith compels us to try to understand it. Well, there have been some very good people who have worked at this and done some great things. Two weeks ago, I started with Anselm of Canterbury, and he came up with what we call, he didn't call it this, but the ontological argument for God's existence. Here is a person's faith steeped, imbued with sacramental liturgy and words and meditation and contemplation and life. His whole soul is just sort of inundated with the wonder of Christian worship. And out of that kind of deep, profound faith orientation, he comes up with his argument of understanding why God's existence is necessarily so and that it's impossible for us not to think that God does not exist. Then last week I talked about Thomas Aquinas, the great 13th century, theologian, philosopher. He had been trained in the natural philosophy of Aristotle, began to think about the world in a very sort of orderly, logical way. He, as a Dominican, nonetheless, was shaped and very much informed by his faith, by the sacraments, by the Word. And so he brings the two together. How can I bring together what I know to be true by faith, what I experience in the Word and sacrament, but also what we know about the world, how it's constructed in an orderly way? How can I bring these two together? And he comes up with what we saw last week, what's called the five arguments for God's existence, and a lot of the way the world is constructed. Now, today I'm going to talk about it. A different sort of person comes up with a different kind of argument, but in my opinion, a very compelling argument, though it's been in some ways grossly misrepresented by many kinds of people, and that is Pascal. Some of you may know that name from what? Math. Math? Yeah, he was first a mathematician. If you've studied much of computer language, one of the first computer languages is called Pascal, and it comes from him. At age 19, he... Um, He came up with a calculator. He was, in a sense, the inventor of calculative digital language, which becomes sort of the bedrock for forming computer language. He was an incredible genius, uh, but lived somewhat of a tormented life. He was born to a well-to-do family. His father, Etienne, was a lawyer, a sort of upper-class civil servant, uh, originally in Paris. I had four children. I do not know much about the fourth one, but I do know quite a bit about his two sisters. He was born in between two sisters who really cared for him a lot and you know nurtured him. Uh, and for many reasons, uh, Pascal himself, Blaise, uh, was a, a very weak child, uh, stricken with a lot of sickness. And all of his life, he suffered with all kinds of problems. Uh, arthritis, he died at an early age, as you can see, up there. he was only 39 years old, he died of a form of cancer. Uh, but his mother died when he was three years old, and it was left to his father to rear him with his two sisters, one a little older and one a little younger. He was a child prodigy, uh, his father wanted him to study mathematics, and so he didn't trust the school system at that time in Paris, and so he trained himself, taught him math. And by age 12, Pascal, much to on his own learning, conquered or mastered much of geometry at that time. Uh, he started to write publishable scientific works by the time he was 19. He studied the nature of cones. He studied the nature of vacuums and how to come up with hydraulics. Uh, and all this eventually was published and became well-known for their scientific treaties. Uh, he... Uh, Struggled a lot with social relationships, felt kind of awkward at times with it, but there was this tr- profound quest in his his life and in his mind to come to an accurate understanding of the way the world is, to how to as a scientist to come up with exact, precise, predictable knowledge, and he was constantly driven by this. However, though, on the other side from his head was his heart, and his heart was sensitive. Uh, Uh, somewhat scarred because of his mother's early death. Uh, He felt pretty inadequate. Uh, He struggled with his relationships. Uh, Though he was well known as a great scientist and a mathematician in his own personal life, he struggled and at times was a little tormenting about his own position in the world and felt very insecure. Uh, In the year 2007, my wife and I were in Paris for two nights, three days, something like that. We were in what was called the Latin Quarter. In Paris, it's not because there are Latins that are there, but because in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, that's where the great universities were, and they all taught in Latin. Hence, it's called the Latin Quarters. And we were walking around, and we came into this plaza, And I saw that statue there, and I thought, I've recognized that face. And indeed, it was Pascal. He is buried there at this church in Paris. You can see his tomb over here. Magnificent church building, like a lot of them are. And as we were wandering around there, we saw that. But uh, dying at age 39, such a gifted mind, in a sense, a lot was left out. But what he did leave, I think, has had a tremendous impact upon a lot of people One of the most famous things that he said, that is Pascal, was that we think about the world in two different ways. Not that there are two different worlds, there's only one world, but we can think about it in two different ways. There's what he called the geometric mind. This is the mind of a scientist. This is a mind of one who comes up with sort of first principles that are established and then by sort of geometrical reasoning comes up with a demonstrable conclusion. He knew that as a scientist. He knew that well. But he also knew that there's what's called... I'll come back to this picture in just a minute. The intuitive mind. This is one of his most famous statements. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. We know this in countless ways. The geometrical mind, the scientific mind, starts off, with the help of logic and mathematics, to try to come up with certitude, precision, things that can be measurable and seen and quantifiable. But there's also another aspect about our lives that's intuitive, that sees things in the whole, that senses them, and this is what he would call the knowledge of the heart. Now, to help illustrate what that means, I want to make sort of a, sort of a thought progression with you. We know things in multiple ways. I suspect some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. There on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, I guess it's on the east side of it, there's a museum there dedicated to how people have studied and looked at the Grand Canyon. Have you been there, seen this? It's really an interesting display. One part of it they give how the Native Americans who lived in that area, like the Navajo, looked at the Grand Canyon. They saw it mainly as a work of their gods. They felt like some of the gods had come out of the Grand Canyon. So it was sort of a religious interpretation of the Grand Canyon. Then, over a period of time, geologists came in and they realized that really what made the canyon was not the gods, but the, the combination of sort of geometrical shifts with the Colorado River that ran through it. And so they had a scientific explanation of what the Grand Canyon is. But the last way in which they depicted the meaning of the Grand Canyon were these magnificent black-and-white photos of Ansel Adams. I suspect you've seen some of those. Here was an artist interpreting them. He was a person with this tremendous kind of creative ability to capture the whole of the experience through the photographs. And they were overwhelming. They were inspiring them. Uh, You can look at the Grand Canyon in those sort of three different ways. How the Native Americans looked at it how a geologist will look at it, and then how an artist looks at it. The artist captures the whole of the experience. In a sense, this is what the heart knows about the canyon. Now, the geometrical mind would want to know the years of erosion, the geographical layers, and so on. Geological layers, I mean. And come to some sort of accountable, demonstrable, precise explanation of it. But what does the heart want to know out of it? Also, think about this. Like with people whom you love in your family, I'll give you a silly illustration of it. Let's say you know when you were first courting your mate or something, and you say, "I'll just use my wife as an example." I would say, "Beverly, why do you why do you love me? How can I be for sure that you really do love me?" And she says, "Well, you know, I've always got something for these guys from Texas. Would that would that convince me? Being a Texan, I'm kind of proud of that, but that wouldn't convince me." That my wife really did love me. Well, I like guys who are bald-headed and blue-eyed. That's not quite enough. I like guys who can wear a bow tie, even though I don't have a bow tie. If she gave me all these rather demonstrable, empirical, quantifiable explanations of why she loved me, I would not be convinced. What would she have to say before I could finally become convinced that she loved me? That in some way or another she knew my soul, my personhood, my selfhood that identity which distinguishes me from anything else in the world, she would say, I love you for who you are. That's what the heart can know. The heart can know the soul of a person, the totality, the whole of a person. That's not reducible to the parts. I want to expand that one more step further to try to capture what uh, what Pascal is trying to get at with his notion of the intuitive knowledge. When you look up at the heavens... And the immensity of it, and see the countless stars. This past summer, I went on an old college retreat with some buddies, and we went to the Davis Mountains in Texas, way out in a remote part of West Texas. It's where some famous uh, observatories are, the McDonald observatories there, and we actually looked at some of the telescopes there. But one of the reasons that's such a great place is, well, one, it's hardly any humidity, but there's also hardly any lights in that area for 75 miles or so. So you can just see it. And I've never seen so many stars. I was just overwhelmed by it. There's something impressive. There's something kind of confrontational in those sort of wonderful experiences of the magnitude of nature itself. And you're lifted up into thinking, there's something here that is confronting me. It's not just... A zillion stars, it's not just the black night, it's not just the cool air that I'm feeling. There's something confronting me in this, and this is what the heart knows. Pascal wanted to do justice to both minds. He wanted to say, what can we know by science is true, it's accurate, but it's limited. It's not going to be able to tell us these other things, these things that we do know by the heart. All along in our lives, we've been trying to make that adjustment, trying to say, what can my heart know about you? What can my heart know about the world? What can my heart know about God? And it takes a different way of knowledge. For instance, in the geometrical mind, we test hypotheses. They have to be quantifiable, measurable in some ways. And in the final form, they need to be arranged in logical ways. But how do you come to know what the heart knows? How can you say, yes, I know my wife loves me. Yes, I know the wonder of existence itself. How do you come to do that? And for Pascal, it's by taking chances. It's by taking chances. Now, uh, when he was probably in his mid-twenties or so, feeling somewhat disgruntled with how his scientific geometric mind was giving him knowledge, he had sort of a, what w- many authors call his first conversion. His father had broken his hips and uh, was immobile for a number of months, and they employed a couple of men to come into the house and help nurture him back to health. These two, two particular men were caught up in what was called the Jansenist movement, J-A-N-S-E-N. IST, the Jansenist movement, named after a man named Jansen. Jansen was a very devout, strict-minded Augustinian, if that means anything to you. St. Augustine had many great ideas. Over the period of time, Augustinianism got associated with this idea that humans are depraved and can do no good in and of themselves, and whatever we can do of any value at all is given to us by strictly the grace of God. The Jansenist movement became very popular, sort of a subculture movement, as a critique against the laxity of society at the time, 17th century France, but in particular against the religious establishment. The Jesuits had pretty well dominated a lot of the religious life in, in Paris in particular in the 17th century. And, um, as long as they were somewhat rightly aligned with the Pope and the Church, then there was tremendous amount of permissiveness that went on among the priesthood and around the laity themselves. The Jansenists were sort of a reform movement, wanting to draw people back to the exclusive emphasis upon the grace of God. Now, they were not well liked. In fact, eventually, they were condemned by the Pope. their heresies, and the teachers uh, were condemned and actually expelled from the University of Paris and Sorbonne uh, for teaching Jansenist doctrines. Well, Pascal became rather enamored with them, almost infatuated with these two men who came to help nurse his father, that he, thinking that there needed to be more news of his religious life than just coming to church, than just being rightly aligned with the established institution of the church. He felt like he needed more heart to it. And so this slowly started to turn. Now, he'd always been sort of a well, a nominal Catholic, I guess, at the time, but his heart wasn't there. It was mainly just a routine that he followed. His heart had not found what it was trying to find until he met these, these particular people. Now, some people debate this. There was a period in which he... Uh, became rather himself relaxed and said that he was into gambling and all kinds of other carousing around. And this just aggravated his own search even more so to try to find what the heart could actually know. And then one night, uh, November the 23rd, 1654, a very traumatic event happened. And there's some debate about the specifics of this. But one story says this that he was crossing a bridge over the River Seine in Paris in a carriage, and the thunderstorm had broken out. And it was, uh, I don't know if a bolt of lightning hit the carriage itself or hit close to it, but it looked like the carriage was going to fall off the bridge and they had fall to the river and possibly drown. Well, this traumatized him, obviously. And from that point on, his life did change quite a bit. He still did some science, by the way. It wasn't a complete breakaway from science. He still did some research, though he didn't publish any more scientific work. He still was working some in math. But, his, his heart finally found what it was looking for. This is called the memorial experience. When they, when he died, when they were looking at his coat, they found a little sleeve sewn on the inside of his coat. And in it was a note. And it was from November the 23rd, 1654. It's called the Memorial. Not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fire, fire, fire. He had this radical second conversion experience here and that tumultuous experience in which he had there on November the 23rd. And this really focused his life to trying to give a defense for the Christian faith in particular, from the Augustinian Jansenistic perspective. Now, that often got him in trouble with a lot of the authorities, and uh, he, along with some of them, were rather ostracized. Uh, but because of his reputation, he was not as persecuted as, well, he was very much influenced by a particular Jansenist theologian named Arnold, who was expelled out of the University of Paris and went to a convent called Port Royal. Now, what's interesting about Port Royal for Pascal is that his beloved Younger sister had become a nun and was in that convert, I mean, convent. Well, when the authorities found out that uh, this convent at Port Royal was housing now these, these sort of outlaw Jansenists, they expelled all of those nuns out of there and uh, burned down the convent itself. These were pretty, pretty rough times. Well, this obviously traumatized not only Pascal himself, but his sister Jacqueline. And she died not much later after that. Well, here he was now without his sister, whom he loved very much, who cared for him a lot. His oldest sister had uh, married and had children, and he wasn't quite involved in all that with her life very much. And he felt very much alone, and he didn't live that much longer after that. But he was furiously trying to write down what he felt like his heart would know, what the heart can know. And these were written in little pieces of paper called notes, thoughts on notes. After he died, a number of people, his oldest sister in particular, started to collect these notes together, and they are published as this book called Pense. Pense. Now, there's a. I can digress for just a second. There's an interesting story about one of the publications of like I said it was a number of sheets of paper with these story I mean with these thoughts on them that eventually were put together into excuse me uh, into the book uh, called Ponce published but there are different versions of this. Here's an interesting story about this. during the Nazi occupation of Paris, a paper manufacturer, Louis Lufuma hid out in the manuscript room, manuscript room of the Bibliothèque Nationale from 1940 to 1944. So he hid there for four years. He studied the manuscripts of Pascal there and realized that a nephew of Pascal had copied the notes as they existed at the time of his uncle's death and that Arnold, remember that theologian, that Jansenist whom he liked very much, and others had made the pay stop. So the nephew collected the notes, and Arnold and others pasted them together into a book. Examining the paper, the glue, the sand, Lafuma established an order of composition. This particular version comes from the Lafuma edition. He compared it with the projected descriptions of the work in Pascal's lecture. After the war, La Fuma edited a radically new text in terms of the order of the fragments, and in terms of which ones has been finished and put into categories by Pascal. And which one remains, I mean, remains unclassified as death because of the detailed evidence LaFuma had amassed during his enforced study, Hitler's unwitting contribution to Pascal scholarship, his radically revised text was soon accepted by Pascal scholars and became the official text used in French school system. Interesting hiding out from the Nazis, he came up and did us all a great service by putting together the thoughts into this version of it. I'm going to read a few of these thoughts that he has in order, once again, and I'll have enough time to do this, to talk about what can the heart know. Okay, Ponce or Thought 298. The heart has its order. The mind has its own, which uses principles and demonstrations. The heart has a different one. We do not prove that we ought to be loved by setting out in order the causes of love. That would be absurd. Like if my wife said, yeah, I love you because you got blue eyes. That's just not quite enough. There needs to be something else. We're looking for something else. I've already given this one here, Thought 4.23. The heart has its reasons, and there are reasons for this. It's not just guesswork necessarily, is not just superstition, it's not just sentiment. We make choices based upon the relative gain to the risk that we're willing to give to get that. It is the heart which perceives God and not the reason. That is what faith is. God perceived by the heart and not by reason. Don't think it is irrational to perceive God through the heart because the heart has its reasons. And we can be wrong sometimes with what the heart does, definitely. We know all that. But there is kind of an order, a process, a clarity that the heart can give us. And that's what he's talking about. You're not going to know God by science. We may know the handprints of God, just like what Thomas Aquinas said last week, how God has left a sense of order in creation. We can understand that by science. But the nature of God is known in the same way you know the soul of another person. And that is this ability of the heart to perceive something. Give me a little bit more time here. I'm going to skip that. Humanity according to Pascal is caught between infinity on one hand and nothingness on the other. Anyone who considers himself in this way will be terrified at himself. And seeing his mass as given him by nature supporting him between these two abysses of affinity infinity and nothingness. We are caught between these two. On one hand, we see the infinite cosmos. On the other hand, we know that eventually we'll die and not know any of that. We're caught between these. And this creates a tension within what the mind and the heart can know. How much can we give ourselves? How much are we uh, willing to give our heart to be able to know that in this infinity that we sense about the universe, there is a personal, loving, redeeming God. How can we know God within all that? And that's when he comes up with what's called the wager. Now, you may have run across this. You may have heard about it in certain ways. I have this in four different steps. What I'm going to do is to go through each of these steps, then I'll come back and try to give a few more of the details. But what he wants to do in this wager is to say just as your heart knows something about the wonder of the Grand Canyon that cannot be just geologically explained and that you know something about the soul of your family member that you cannot just physiologically explain and you know something about the stars in the sky that you just cannot account for astronomically, so can we know something about God. And that is done by the wager. The first step is this, God is or God is not, right? It's a 50-50 chance. Is there a God? Well, either there is one or there is not. Reason cannot decide this question. That is, we could go to maybe a neuroscientist. They're not going to tell us what a God is. They may tell us what goes on in our brain. We can go to an astrological physicist. Uh, astronomical physicist, and they may tell us about all kinds of physical attributes of the stars and black holes and gravity and all that, and light itself. But can they tell us anything about the nature of God? And the answer is no. Reason is not going to prove that is geometric religion is not going to prove to you the nature of something you should love. Just as it wouldn't prove that for my family, wouldn't prove that for God. The second step. Once we admit Either God is or God is not, not settled by the geometric mind, we come to the second step. You have two things to lose the true and the good, and two things to stake your reason and your will, your knowledge and your happiness. Either God is or God is not. What must I stake in order to believe that God is? I involve the true and the good. That is, if there is a God, then it's true and good to believe that there is a God. If there is not a God, then it's also true and good to believe that there's not a God. It would be wrong to believe in something that is not right. And so, truth and goodness is at stake in this, so it's a very serious question. We're not talking necessarily about who won the football game last night. We're talking about something of eternal significance. That is, if there's a God you should believe that there is one. If there is not a God, you should also believe that there is not a God. But what is at stake in all this? Our happiness is at stake in all this. If there is a God, and we rightly believe in that God, then our eternal happiness is at stake. If there is not a God, and we believe that there is not a God, it's not that eternal happiness at stake, but relative temporal happiness is at stake. So if there's a God and you believe in God, you're more likely to get an eternal return. If there's not a God and you believe that there's not a God, you'll get just temple returns. Step three. Here there is an infinity of infinitely happy life to be won. One chance of winning against a finite number of chances of losing. Now, many people criticize Pascal at this point because it sounds like gaming theory. If you were to gamble, you'd be taking risk relative to the expected return in this. How much are you willing to risk? That the expected value of something is the probability of it happening. The payoff minus the cost. What's the probability that there is a God? 50-50. This is all reason can tell us. This is all science can tell us. Either there is or there isn't. What's the payoff? If there is a God, you get infinite happiness. And there is not a God, you only get temporal happiness. So what's the cost? The cost is great. So if there is a God and you don't believe that there is a God, then you lose out on eternal happiness. If you believe there is a God and there is not a God, you only lose a small degree of happiness. You're more likely to get return relative to your investment if you believe in God than if you don't believe in God. So therefore, you must wager. And that's step number four. That's step number four. You must wager. What would you do? Now this sounds like gaming theory, what you would do if you were gambling or something. Of course, he was also a mathematician. He knew about probability. He actually came up with some theories of probability and how to use probability to to test scientific hypotheses. He is very much an advocate of the new science. He, in his own education and his own beliefs, affirmed what the new science had told about the nature of the solar system and so on. So he's not saying that science is totally worthless in what it can know. But what are you willing to wager? What risk do you take to know the soul of something? Or is there no risk at all? If there's no risk at all, can our soul, can our heart actually know the soul of anything if there is no risk at all? Now that last little parenthetical comment, I think, is a key notion to understand what he means here by the wager. This is conclusive. And if people are capable of any truth, this is it. Sounds rather presumptuous on his part to say that. That is, if you're capable of any truth, of any knowledge at all, you must accept this wager. Now, what do you think he means by that? Then, you, you do. You have to choose. Now, is this an irrational choice? Is this a superstitious choice? Is it a whimsical choice? Pascal was saying all our lives we have learned something from the very fundamental relationships that are so central to our very core of our being to the way in which we approach art, the way in which we approach the wonder of nature itself, we learn something. And what we learn is that if I am not willing to sense the soul of something, I will never experience it. You will never experience love of someone else if you're not willing to risk love. We learn that. And according to Pascal, from the very beginning of our sort of self-reflection, how we grow into mature thinking people, we always sort of make that calculation. How much am I willing to expose myself to give of my heart to somebody, to find a heart in somebody else? And the same thing goes with God. The same way of reasoning that we give in trying to find the heart of somebody else or trying to find that wonder of things that confronts us and the great mystery of the world itself is the same kind of reasoning that goes on in our knowledge of God. You have to be invested in the truth of this before you will ever know it to be true. It's not as simple as just adding up numbers. It's not as clear as following some sort of logical demonstration it's a personal investment. now Pascal has been criticized by all kinds of people. Uh, Sigmund Freud thought him to be neurotic you know he looked at his life you know saw the sort of struggles that he had that he had been almost an orphaned uh, early in uh, his life when his mother died at uh, age three. Uh, he himself struggled with sort of emotional issues constantly. He had a lot of physical pain all his life. So he came up with this as a way of escaping his own kind of sense of misery. Now, Pascal was a miserable person. I mean, he really did struggle. He had a very pessimistic view about what we could accomplish as human beings. Uh, At this time, around 1635, France and Spain went to a civil war. Uh, and So he knew about the, the horrors and conflicts that went on in war. Uh, Paris had become sort of a seabed for all kinds of pessimism and skepticism. Uh, If you know much about the period of uh, uh, 15th and 16th century, 17th century uh, intellectual life there in, in Paris, a whole form of skepticism had moved into sort of the intelligentsia at the time. There was a very famous, and I think in some ways a very brilliant thinker named Montaigne, who was very skeptical about what we could know about the world and about what we can do socially with one another. The Hundred Years' War had been going on, and all kinds of religious strife. The Protestant Reformation had come into full swing by this time, and Europe was divided up into Protestant and sub Protestants and Roman Catholic, and all kinds of wars and conflicts that were going on at this time. And then comes into this, into the intellectual culture, this kind of skepticism. If you know much about Rene Descartes, famous, also a mathematician, philosopher, came up with his own argument for God's existence. He was also very much influenced by this kind of skepticism. And so was Pascal. Ironic here was Montaigne, a tremendous writer, world traveler, uh, tr- gifted in all kinds of insights about human experience. In the end, he said, well, frankly, we're just not going to do much good. Here's Descartes felt that you could doubt away everything. You don't know anything with certainty unless, if you remember this, that I think that's the only thing that you can know for certainty. I think, therefore I am. Pascal, great man of science, had accomplished things as a boy wonder. If anybody ought to be optimistic about what people could accomplish, it ought to be Pascal. But he knew that there's something flawed in the mind. We're not going to be able to solve this sort of perennial conflict that goes on among people. We're not going to be able to pierce through mathematics and demonstration into the reason why we exist. The mind is limited. Like I said, we're in between two things. On one hand, nothing. On the one hand, infinity. What do you do with this? And this is when the heart comes in. And I am quite convinced that Pascal knew as certainly in his heart that God existed as he knew in his mind what he had come up with with his scientific research. Because the heart has its own reasons that the mind knows nothing of. And we only do this by personally investing ourselves. Now, uh, there are other people who sort of rejected this. Friedrich Nietzsche, if you know much about Nietzsche, uh, 18th century, uh, yeah, uh, 19th century philosopher in the 1800s. uh, He felt like uh, uh, Pascal, brilliant scientific mind, had been corrupted by the church and driven to madness and that's why he came up with this. I know a lot of people want to dismiss this as kind of like a life insurance policy. You know, just get a little bit of belief to God then you got, you know, eternal rewards for this. Other people see this as kind of a manipulation of God. Well, look God, I believe in you now, therefore you owe me eternal happiness for this. I think all those kind of criticisms do not understand the wager itself. Now, if all we knew about Pascal was just a wager, that might be true. That is, this might be just an illustration of gaming theory. The expected value of something is its probability and the cost that you have to give to get that expected value. But what he's trying to illustrate is this is exactly what we do in the knowledge of the heart. We do it with our relationships, we do it with art, and we do it with God. That is, how much of your heart are you willing to give in order to get the return? of actual knowledge of God. That capacity that we have to be able to see the soul of a person, to experience the whole of something, like the Grand Canyon itself. The various times I've been there, you know, if you you walk up, you don't see it, and then all of a sudden you're at the edge of it. It just almost r- grabs you into that experience. The totality of it. It's not the specifics. It's the whole of those specifics that grab us. And it's also the same thing with God. The whole. Now, one time, um, someone came up to Pascal and was asked, yeah, I'm trying to find God, but I cannot. I want to find God, but I cannot. And Pascal admitted that atheism is really based upon just one one claim. That is, I don't have enough evidence. A lot of what I said, and a lot of what you may know about Pascal, what do you think was his answer to that inquirer who said, I cannot find God? When you're trying to find someone to love, where do you go? You go to people, don't you? (laughs) If you're trying to understand the soul of a person, don't you go to people and test what your heart can discern and ascertain in these people? Yes, you go to them. Where do you go to find God? Well, what Pascal said, is start going to church. Read the Bible. Take the sacraments daily. Get involved with how other people have found the reality of God and then test your heart. So it's by the habits of love that love can find what it seeks. You cannot find what your heart seeks by not going to where what can be found by the heart is. You have to go to people to love people. You have to go where people have found God to find God. And so, even though this sounds sort of like a, like I said, an intellectual manipulation of God, in some ways it's a very orthodox teaching about what the church says. This is my body. This is my blood. This is the Word of God. This is the sanctuary. It's not just a room, an auditorium. It is a place of holiness. So, where do you find holiness? Well, you've got to go there. Where do you find the person of God? You've got to go there. And the more you go and the more you seek and the more you're willing to invest your heart in that, according to Pascal, the more your heart can know that indeed this is about the person of God. Now, I'll say this and I'll conclude. I've got to end here in a minute. Though I like all these arguments, and next week we're going to look at another argument associated somewhat of a Christian named Immanuel Kant. I think he's got an interesting argument. I'm always intrigued by these things, but there's some special attraction that I like about Pascal. This is down at the core of our being. This involves a very fundamental aspect of human identity, and that is this. We all are ambiguous. None of us are perfect thinking machines. Our hearts are always conflicted, carrying memories of frustration and great accomplishments. Our, Our memories themselves are filled with great wonders and taste of beauty, but also disappointments and and frustrations and sadness. We're a combination of all these things. You cannot neatly divide them out. In a sense, we are one with many, many kinds of memories and thoughts and aspirations and frustrations and so on. We are ambiguous beings at the core of our lives. How can I come to know the holy, righteous God, the creator of the universe. How can I know the Alpha and the Omega? I come just as I am, just like that great hymn says, just like I am. I give it all, just like I did with my family, my wife. I gave it all. I made a vow. And in making that vow, she and I have learned our souls, though it's not come easily, as it? And the same thing with God. There's something very human about what Pascal's talking about here. Well, I guess maybe that's why I've always been attracted to it. We have a just a minute here. Anybody want to make a comment, I mean, a concluding comment. I hope if there's one thing you get from what I've tried to do here was that closing comment. I think, yes, if, sir. You, I think if you uh, tie the wager to this we know in uh, countless ways that that shows as hard as with God. yeah, right, right. In spite of this sort of mathematical statement, do you get the impression that Pascal, viewed you know, science and math, is sort of failing, failing him in the end? Failing in giving us eternal happiness, failing in satisfying all that we need to be satisfied in. But, but did he think that that led him to it? Yes, in part. Uh, because he realized the limitations of what one can know just through the geometric mind. And that you'll never really know how to move into the heart until you finally realize that it's not just the blue eyes and being a Texan and being bald-headed that can convince you to love me. Interesting point. Yes? It seems like to me the busier we get, the richer we get, people are able to put off this decision. Oh, right, right. That... Literally for their entire life. Right. It, it... Yeah, Pascal, really, that's a good point. The opposite of the wager is a superficial, simplistic, narcissistic life. That I'm happy with just possessions. Oh, I'm perfectly content with pleasure. That kind of person is not persuaded by the wager at all. The kind of person who has tried those things and not find true happiness... You know, like that great country western song, "Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places." <laughs> uh, uh, in, in fact, that, that's part sort, sort of a Pascalian thing. We've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Go take the sacraments, read the Word, be in the sacrament, in the in the sanctuary, and see what you can find there. You're right. This 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 is rather counterculture to us because this demands a deep introspective person who realizes that there's something fundamentally ambiguous about the human soul. In other words, it's okay to be messed up. In fact, that's part of our hope when we come to realize that we are messed up. Good points. Let me close with a prayer. Our gracious Lord, I ask that You deepen all of our minds as we understand the great wonder of our world, but deepen our hearts to be able to understand just how wonderful You are. And this I pray, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.